0: We're going to be in Luke chapter 9 this morning, if you're somebody who likes to get there ahead of time. Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 51 through 56. Um, But before we get into the scripture, uh, obviously the Christmas story and and, and the song that we just sung, it it is so beautiful. It centers on the birth of Christ. God making a new covenant with man by sending his only begotten son, born of a virgin, living a perfect sinless life to, to lay it down so humbly in supreme love and submission to the Father so that we might again have a relationship with the Father, uh, getting full redemption, full payment for our sin based on grace alone uh, through faith, not of our works, lest we boast. And so we have this tremendous time of the year where we focus on the birth of Christ. And, and uh, the, the, the portion of Scripture we're going to look at this morning is actually a little bit further down the line. Jesus is actually setting his sights on Jerusalem. And he's setting his sights on the final stretch run of, of his ministry. And so we will see uh, why he came into the world. He's going to fulfill why he came as a child to be born of a virgin. He's going to be fulfilling that calling uh, here in this, in this uh, portion of scripture. He's setting his sights on, on Jerusalem. And sometimes, you know, in our lives, we uh, start something. Something is birthed in our lives, right? And it it takes a lot out of us. It, It requires a lot from us. And so we start a project or a journey or an undertaking, and we have some successes along the way, some difficulties, and you have to persevere through. But as you come down to the home stretch, as you see that finish line, you have a certain resolve, you have a certain extra boost of energy, if you will. Uh, you see that in sports, you see, you know, the, that team coming down the stretch to, to the championship game or finishing the season strong. Maybe you've been in school and that long semester is drawing to the end and finals are coming up and you have that final push to get through uh, th- those, those, those exams. Uh, maybe a massive project at work that you've been given and it's been arduous and now you're at at the end of it, you can see the finish line, and again, you give that final push. And so that's where we're going to pick up today in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. We're going to see Jesus approaching Jerusalem, and he's going to be setting his sights on the ascension. Verse 51 When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Verse 53. But they did not receive him, because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. And so, again, in this portion of Scripture, we see the Lord's, uh, disposition change a bit. Jesus begins the final leg of his life as the son of man. Again, once born of a virgin, the, the time of year that we celebrate now, he is in the final leg of his ministry. He is setting his sights on the ascension. He's ready to complete the work of redemption for all mankind. And in this, in this you could you, maybe he could be reflecting on his birth at Bethlehem, his uh, time when this family had to take him out of Israel escape to Egypt because of the edict of King Herod to kill all of the male children two years and below and then their return back to Israel when he was to grow up in Nazareth grow up as a as a common boy in a common uh common family and then as he grew in the Lord and as he began to wax strong in the Lord he at 30 years of age began his public ministry And that public ministry began at that that wedding feast in Cana where he turned water into wine. And so now he is at the end of this journey. He's fixing his eyes on the ascension. and, And the Bible says he was determined. That literally says he set his face to Jerusalem. He was resolved. He had a steadfast desire. He was unwavering. He was dead set on getting to Jerusalem. Isaiah the prophet in 50 verse 7. If you want to flip back and forth, if you're a quick Bible uh, flipper of of the pages. Isaiah 50, verse 7, gives us a little bit more insight. Verse 7 says, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. That term, like a flint, means to harden one's focus. It means to, to, to not necessarily harden to be, um, to be mean or, or to have a, a hardness to you in, in terms of a hard heart, but it means Jesus intensely focused on finishing the work he began. And the Lord knew that he would not be ashamed. He would not be ashamed of the work that he had to endure. Therefore, we should not be ashamed of our Lord when we uh, proclaim our, our, our faith and trust in him, our pro- proclaim to others in society. And so though Jesus was unjustly tried by both his own people, the Jews, and by the Romans, and beaten and scourged and whipped, he was going to face uh, having his beard plucked out, blasphemed, degraded. He was going to be unrecognizable, marred more than any other as he hung on that cross. He knew that he would not be ashamed. In that same passage of Scripture in Isaiah 50, one verse earlier Verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Probably nothing worse, more degrading than to be spat upon. Jesus did not cover his face. He set his face to that ascension. He set his face with resolve. He was on a course to finished the work that he started as an infant child in Bethlehem. What we celebrate now, he was on the course to finishing that and he was not to be deterred and he was not going to be ashamed. Even though there would be some humiliation that would come upon it, some of the, the worst things done to man, he was not going to be ashamed. The beatings, the scourgings, the wrath Jesus would endure in order to conquer sin, death and the grave, he was going to not only... Uh, finished that work on the cross he was going to resurrect from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the father and so this verse also or uh, or this concept also can be backed up in hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 the writer of hebrews says for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of god Despising the shame, and he felt, he, he thought very little of it. He didn't consider it weighty. He thought very little of this shame that he was going to have to endure because he looked beyond what he was going to have to endure to be at the right hand of the throne of, of the Father. He endured the cross, despised the shame, thought very little of it. He set his face on this. And so he knew, even though there, there might be some humiliating aspects to his to his uh, uh, work, he was not going to be ashamed for us. There was no discussion for his, if you notice when he set his face on the ascension to go to Jerusalem, there was no discussion. His determination was fueled because he knew his days were approaching. Luke didn't mention the crucifixion, that was interesting to me. So if you look at verse 50, uh, excuse me, 51, it says when the days were approaching for his ascension, not his crucifixion. See, the ascension, if he were to die and, 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 and shed his blood, he would have died just like the two other men that were on his right and in his left. For him to now, again, descend to the lower parts of the earth and now ascend to the right hand of the Father, now full payment has been made. Now we know that we have our Savior. Everything now is made possible through Christ. So there was no discussion amongst the Jews, or amongst the disciples. Um, they were in, in full agreement. The culmination of his coming to earth was to be filled, not just at Calvary, but to his ascending to the right hand of the Father. So as believers in Christ, as those who have professed our, our, our uh, faith and allegiance to our Lord, I was asking myself, have I set my face to my Lord? Have I set my face and my, is my disposition Am in my, I in my resolute in my faith to Christ now? Knowing that I will endure hardships in the world. We will have tribulation, but be of good courage. Jesus has overcome the world. Knowing that we will be tempted by worldly pursuits and enticed by fleshly desires. Knowing that we may even be mocked and persecuted for our faith. Have I set my face on my Lord, on my Savior? Philippians 2 Paul says in verses 5 through 7 have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man again he emptied himself completely he was at the right hand of the father he came down uh, in humble means hum- humiliated or humbled himself excuse me to the form of a bondservant and took on likeness of man So like a flint, Jesus set his face on Jerusalem, set his face on this ascension. He did not waver nor flinch. He knew the time had come to fulfill his calling. So may I say that we are in the home stretch. (laughs) We are in the last days. Times are getting darker. We are witnessing our society embrace a one-world culture, a global philosophy, buying and selling through numbers. We are witnessing terms like global reset. We hear uh, wars and rumors of wars. We see the uptick and earthquakes and and cataclysms, natural disasters throughout the world. Of course, we we hear about pestilence every single day with, with the current coronavirus pandemic. We are in the stretch run. We are in our final leg of our journey. So all the more reason why we need to have our face set to Christ, like a flint, like Jesus said, like a flint, and we are with resolve more now than ever moving on to verse 52 interestingly enough verse 52 jesus sent messengers on ahead of him you know he wanted to make sure that there would be uh he he was going to prepare the way in a sense he wanted them to enter the village and, and make arrangements. They're going to a Samaritan village. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that dynamic between Jews and Samaritans here in a moment. But he sent his messengers on ahead of him. And that was a, a common theme throughout the scriptures. If, if you remember, the father went to great lengths to send messengers on ahead of Christ. Messengers like Daniel, Micah, Zechariah. Isaiah would proclaim the coming Messiah so as to ensure that there would, we would be without excuse to know that Jesus was, in fact, the coming one, the one that was to be born uh, to, to save the world. Just as the angel Gabriel was sent to Mary, a, a common story that is told or a common um, depiction of, of what happens during Christmas, he, he approaches Mary and says, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, and he will reign over the the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So we see that God sent the angel Gabriel to Mary as a messenger prior to Christ. Just as the father raised up John the Baptist, to be the forerunner for Christ as one crying in the wilderness so as to not, those that were around, not to miss the beloved Son in whom the Father was well pleased. And we as Christians have had many messengers as well. Prior to maybe coming to faith, other Christians have come across your life and shared their faith with you, witnessed to you so that you would be without excuse. So Jesus sends his messengers on ahead of him. But one of the saddest portions of the scripture, and I I had to really dwell on this, They did not receive him. See, just as the prophets were not received, they were stoned and killed. Just as John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded for being the forerunner of Christ, just as Jesus had no room in the inn in Bethlehem, he was sent out to the manger. Once again, Jesus is being rejected. They did not receive him. And they didn't receive him here because there was a cultural norm that uh, is not prevalent necessarily in our particular culture here in America. Jews and Samaritans had no dealings. The Samaritans were half Jewish, half Gentile. They had their own copy of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They had their own copy. They had separate dealings, a separate worship system altogether. They did not have any dealings with the Jews. Earlier in John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, you remember the dialogue that Jesus had with the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan woman. And Jesus asked for a, asks for a drink from the woman, and she replies, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since, since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. For added context here, it would have been highly uncommon for any Jew to talk to a woman, even if they were of the same family, let alone a Samaritan woman whom they did not know. So this was very uncommon. And then John 4, 27, the disciples, it says the disciples were amazed, meaning they marveled at the fact that Jesus had been speaking to her. Just the fact that he had engaged her in conversation was, uh, uh, that amazed them. It, they were marveling at that. So Jesus was being rejected because he was a Jew and because he was on his way to Jerusalem. By the way, this, his passing through Samaria was very intentional on his part. He could have went different, a different direction, but he purposely went through Samaria. And so many Christians have not received Christ on the basis of societal pressures or cultural norms, maybe even family traditions. Other, or other man-made stumbling blocks. Christ has been rejected for a number of reasons. We're seeing Christ being rejected here because of his being a Jew, them being a Samaritan, those two people groups not having any dealings. And, and due to our fallen nature as, as men, we put up, uh, put up dividing walls all over the place. We create and sustain and even build up these walls, and they take, take root in, in areas like political, if we're in different political parties, We see different social standings. You can't really hang out with somebody who's not in in the same social standing as you. We might even divide over race, um, might divide over ethnicity. We spend time with those who may be closely aligned or closely resemble ourselves. And In Ephesians 3, Paul tackles this and and he calls it the mystery of Christ revealed. So as you study Ephesians, the back half of of chapter 2 and the front half of Ephesians 3, there was a revelation given to Paul And Paul said that at no other time, no other time had this revelation been given to him. He was given this burden to share. And what he said is, Christ not only came to satisfy the law, not only came to pay the penalty for our sins, he came to unify mankind into a new race, one race that is the church. We are now saints in Christ He came to unify mankind, to remove the dividing walls that we've created through political party, through racial tension, through social status. He came to remove all of those divisions, all those distinctions that create hostility and hate. He came so that we could create a new identity in him. Ephesians 3.6 says, "...to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel." You see, the Jews thought because God had chosen them as the chosen race to reveal himself, his promises and his word and the coming Messiah, they thought they were the supreme race. They thought they were good with God just on that basis alone. But God just chose them as the race by which he was going to reveal himself. It didn't absolve them of the sin that they had committed. They too needed a savior. They too needed Jesus. And so Jesus is saying the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They are co-heirs. They are are going to inherit the same amount as the Jew. That was a radical statement. That's what Paul is saying there. Their fellow members of the body were on equal footing. There is no distinction. And their fellow partakers of the promise before they were afar off, Paul says, they 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 didn't have any of the promises given to them in prior to Christ. But now they have this promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel, through the good news. And in Galatians, he continues. In Galatians 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. So notice, there is no racial distinctions. There's neither slave nor free. There's no social distinctions. There's neither male nor female. There's no gender distinctions. And for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ died for all so that we could become one. And so this... This rejection of Jesus here, because he's a Jew, because he's on his way to Jerusalem, the very fact that he's being rejected for for this reason is the very reason he came. That must have grieved his heart. I came in the form of of, of a baby in Bethlehem so that you and I could be be, um, reconciled to the Father and you could be one with whoever it is, Samaritan Jew or whoever. Social standing aside, racial standing aside, all of these things that divide us are now erased in Christ and so his disciples James and John they uh, they have an, an interesting reaction to this right in verses 54 and 55 Jesus again absolutely resolved and determined to get to Jerusalem getting to the ascension he's faced with this immature response from James and John and an even more reckless question and they don't quite know what they're asking. James and John were, were brothers. If you remember, they were given the, the uh, title or the nickname of Sons of Thunder, and they were taking this title literally. Though they were demonstrating great faith and thought they were showing great allegiance to Jesus, showing great you know, uh, support to him because of this rejection, it was gravely immature, and it showed just how much they misunderstood why Jesus came. He came in the flesh not to call fire down to lap these Samaritans up. He didn't want the ground to open up and and swallow them. You see, Jesus was a gentle, beautiful spirit. The only time he described his own nature, he said, I am gentle and humble in heart. Throughout his life, he was even when he rose those who were dead to life, when he gave sight to the blind and restored hearing to those who were deaf, cleansed the leper and... Uh, Delivered the demon-possessed. He did it with humility. He did it with discretion. Oftentimes, he would tell those who, who he uh, ministered a miracle to, don't go and, and tell anybody else, just keep this to yourself. He was a very, very humble servant. And to call fire down from heaven would have been such a spectacle, completely out of context for, what, or for why Christ came. Jesus came to the earth humbly. He lived his life humbly. He engaged his ministry humbly and he died with extreme humility. Commanding fire down to come from heaven to consume these Samaritans was in direct opposition of his first coming. So he gives them a loving but firm rebuke. He says, You do not know the spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Here in verse 56, Jesus' mission statement is very, very clear. I did not come to destroy men's lives, I came to save them. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You have to ask yourself, why did he use this word destroy? They're of a different spirit. The thief comes only to steal, steal, kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said in John 10:10. 10, 10. Jesus said to Peter, "Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. We have an enemy of our soul that wants to kill steal and destroy and we see it he's on a full court press right now he's on a complete rampage within the world right now he's coming to kill steal and destroy to destroy men's lives many people believe that they have to work on themselves to some degree to come to god notice james and john sons of thunder had been serving with jesus for quite some time And they make such an outlandish statement and make such a a, a crazy request that is so out of line with why Jesus had come. Now, Jesus doesn't reject them. He doesn't cast them off. He doesn't kick them out of of the group. He rebukes them. He continues to love them. But again, so many people believe they got to get themselves right. they got to get to a certain place before they can come and, and, and walk with Christ and have a relationship with Christ. And we see an example of two disciples who have a glaring lack of understanding of why Jesus came to earth, but he still loves them. He still continues to, to, to keep them in his, in his bosom. You know, sometimes we, not, we might not think we can pray correctly, or we don't understand the scriptures, or we're out of place in a worship service because I see people lifting their hands and I'm not, or, or what does this mean that I have to serve and, 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 and do things for the Lord? All of these things really don't make sense. But God is holy and just, and He will continue to work on you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And just as He did with James and John here, they continued to mature. They continued to grow. James and John, interestingly enough, are, uh, or, excuse me, John is uh, throughout uh, His maturation process, He's known as the Apostle of Love. Once a son of thunder, He's now termed an apostle of love. If you read 1 John 40 different times, he either uses the word love or a derivative of the word love. And so he drastically, drastically matures throughout his time. He didn't start start there, but that's where he got to as he continued to spend time with the Lord. Peter, you see Peter, impetuous, fervent in spirit, wanting to to get out there for the Lord, slicing the ear off of of the Praetorian guard who who came and, and to take him captive. Peter was, was in that same place. But when you watch and you look at Peter in, in the book of Acts and you see him in, in, and read what he wrote in his epistles in First and 2 Peter, you see a man radically changed, radically so mature, a leader of the church, someone who's doing great and mighty things for the Lord. And so he didn't come to, to destroy men's lives. He came that he could save them. James and John, interesting, interesting request. <laughs> So one of the saddest statements is they moved on to a different village. Statement of fact is Jesus will not force himself on anyone. Because the Samaritans didn't receive him, they they went on to another village. Jesus, Jesus will never force himself on you. He won't kick down the door of your life. He'll pursue you. He'll knock at the door of your heart. He'll wait for you to open up that door and invite him in. And when you do invite him in, he will come in. And he will dine with you. He will abide with you. You then can abide with him, and the change will happen. Jesus' life began by not being received, but being sent out to a manger, sent out to to live or to, to be with the animals. During his ministry, he said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Isaiah gives us uh, uh, some more uh, insight as to the life of Christ. Isaiah prophesied in 53.3, he says, The Lord was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like the one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. You see the Lord's life being a man of sorrows, someone who is rejected time and time and time again. And yet, despite all of this, he sets his face to Jerusalem. He sets his face for the ascension to complete the work of why he came to Bethlehem some 33 years prior to this this time period. He was determined to finish the work of the redemption that he started as a baby. And he had every excuse not to go. He had every reason not to follow follow that road to Jerusalem. So this Christmas season, so many will make the mistake that the Samaritans make. They did not receive them. The, the very gift of God, the greatest gift ever given to men, they will not receive it. They will receive every other gift that maybe comes under the tree, every other gift that's given to them by a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker, and they'll open up those gifts gladly and, and wear them and use them, but they will reject the very gift that God has given them, the gift of Christ. Jesus said in he says, but as many as has received him to them, he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So as you receive the Lord, you now have the right to become a child of God. There is a, there is a give and take with the Lord. You have to be uh, receptive of the Lord. The second part of that sad statement of not receiving him is the very end there where it says, the result is they went on to another village. Jesus moved on. Now, we're not quite sure if those Samaritans ever come to faith. But because of their current social uh, distinctions, because of the dividing walls that existed, because of where their heart was, they rejected the very gift that God had given them. And that very gift now is moving on to another village. May that not be <laughs> uh, where we are this morning. Hopefully we have received the gift of Christ in our life and have dedicated our lives to him through faith that he might not move on to another village, that he might not pass us by. He's calling out to you right now. Would you receive him?